Hi, my name is Max Barobi, and this is my podcast, The Mystery of the Victims of the Chameleon Killer. In this podcast, I will be reviewing and discussing another podcast called Bear Brook, hosted by Jason Moon and the New Hampshire Public Radio. This podcast follows Jason as he walks you through the mysterious circumstances that ultimately would lead to the killer that would later be coined the chameleon. In my podcast, I will summarize the Bear Brook podcast, discuss the victims of the Bear Brook murders, the conditions that they were found, the evidence surrounding the case, the serial killer that committed the crime, my own initial predictions of the crime and who could have committed it, along with the main players of the crime, who they were. I will then finish by discussing the individuals that were impacted by the affected crimes and will also delve into the mind of the serial killer known as the Chameleon. Enter the quiet area of Allenstown, New Hampshire, population 4,300, where the biggest thing that would make the news would be a local bear sighting, and we had, they had one cop for every 20 square miles. The beginning of the podcast, Bear Brook, seemed to depict a story straight out of a movie. Three young boys in 1985 were riding their ATVs through the woods of the Bear Brooks National Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. They then stumbled upon a large 55-gallon blue barrel. They saw that the lid of the barrel was partially uncovered, revealing a plastic bag. They decided, as any young boys would do, to knock the barrel over. What the boys didn't realize, however, was that the mystery that they would unleash would stump law enforcement for many years to come. The boys would end up going home and describing the barrel that smelled like spoiled milk to their mother, who didn't think anything of it. Thankfully, they didn't end up examining the container, as a hunter would later be the one to unfortunately find the overturned barrel and call local police. Once the deputy examined the barrel, he found the remains of two nude and dismembered bodies in plastic bags. Both were females, one older in her 20s and one that was around 9 years old. The plastic bags were tied with electrical wire and the remains were almost skeletal. After examining the bodies, the skulls showed to have blows to the head with blunt instruments and the bodies seemed to have been in the barrels for a few months to a few years, with law enforcement not being certain of this. Ron Mount Pleasure was a police officer that was assigned to the case, and he was actually the first one that arrived and saw the barrel's contents. After walking around and fishing for information from the town's residents, he found that no one seemed to know who the individuals were. Ron Mount Pleasure later claimed that they had no high-tech forensics teams, they had no psychologists with suspect profiles, and had very limited resources. At the end of the day, there was no info found out and no one seemed to know anything. State police couldn't find any reports anywhere of missing individuals, especially anyone that seemed to look like mothers, a mother and a daughter. After examining five years of camping records, they also found nothing. And looking at elementary school records, they also didn't see anything. At the end of the day, this was, quote-unquote, the most frustrating case that Officer Mount Pleasure has ever faced. Sketches from the remains were composited, 
with the victim one showing a long face being mid to late 20s between 5'2 and 5'8 in height and had wavy light brown hair. Victim two was also a girl and had a small upturned nose, ponytail with blonde hair and was around nine or 10 years old. There were plenty of theories as to what might have happened and who these individuals might have been. However, no concrete evidence ever came, came up. After a long period of investigation, the two women or two girls were finally buried two years in after the police seemed to give up hope. Both females would go on to be unidentified and unclaimed for many years. Fifteen years later, another barrel would be found by a state trooper that was assigned to the cold case. This barrel was found a mere 300 feet away where it remained hidden for 15 years. Inside of this barrel were the decomposed remains of two more unknown females, one aged two to four and the other a mere year old. The state trooper that found the second barrel found it on its side and it was dark blue and also 55 gallons. It was unmistakably the same barrel as the first one or at least looked exactly the same. Inside he found the two decomposed bodies and this ended up begging the question, why did it take so long to find? And why were they not able to find it in the first place? Police officer Ron Mount Pleasure claimed he must have not set up a perimeter large enough as the forests in New Hampshire were very thick and he claimed it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Another fact that might have led the police officers of the town astray was a new body was found a couple miles away the day after the barrel was found. A man by the name of Danny Paquette was shot and killed in the chest. He was welding outside in his backyard when a shot from the woods shot him into the chest. Thoughts of the police officers initially was that this might have been a hunting accident. However, many people didn't like Danny as he slept around with a lot of the girls and wives of people in the town. The case of Danny Paquette ended up just being a dead end and absolutely not related to the Bear Brook murders. Later DNA testing showed that the adult victim was related to the first child that was around nine years old and the youngest child that was around one years old. However, the middle child was not related. This brought up thoughts that perhaps this middle child was a friend or maybe adopted. 30 years later, in 2015, new DNA evidence, new forensic sketches, along with new DNA technology emerged. The new forensic DNA evidence used radioisotope testing, which gave investigators a new lead. So, by using radioisotope testing, they were able to give clues about geographic location of the victims and where the victims could potentially have been from. This would essentially, quote-unquote, shrink the haystack and allow a narrowed-down search for where the individuals that are the victims could have been from. This new data showed that the victims couldn't have been from Europe, Canada, or Mexico, and the three related victims had similar oxygen isotopes, therefore they were definitely related and from the same area, while the one non-related victim had different oxygen isotope and therefore was most likely from a different area. The finding of these barrels would lead to many, many unanswered questions, along with many dead ends, as no family ever claimed the victims. 
Many questions still remained, however, such as why did it take so long to find the second barrel, and why was the case not solved after so many years? According to law enforcement in Allenstown, they claimed that in the 1980s, technology was very limited, and resources in a very small town like Allentown were also lim limited. Another unrelated homicide that occurred in the town nearby also pulled resources away from the Bear Brooks case, and as such, the case itself remained a cold case for many years to come. Following the story of the Bear Brook case, reporter Jason Moon then transports us to California, where the next puzzle piece of this mystery was found. It is here that a woman by the name of Anson June was murdered by a man who went by the name of Larry Vanner. This man was also found to go by the name of Curtis Kimball, Gerald Mockerman, Bob Evans, and Terry Rasmussen. He would later be known as the Chameleon Killer for his ability to take on different personas and convince his victims to trust him and to believe in the character that he pretended to be. Ensign June, the wife of Larry Vanner, ended up not talking to her family after meeting him. She broke all ties with family members and only kept conversations going with her friend Rosie. Once Ensoon disappeared, Rosie continued to call her nonstop to try and find out what was wrong and where she was. After a while, Larry was the only one that answered, and he would lie to her about Ensoon's whereabouts. After a while, Rosie called the police, and Officer Roxanne was placed onto her case. Vanner ended up being arrested and interrogated, and he claimed that she was in Oregon seeing a psychiatrist. After the police officers called, they found out that she actually wasn't there. After this, they ended up looking into Larry and found that he didn't have an ID, only an index number. This was somewhat strange considering most individuals have at least a license. After this, Larry was fingerprinted, and they found that he went by all of the names previously mentioned, and he had a criminal record. At that point, Officer Roxanne had enough to go and search his house. Once she went searching his house, she found a dead cat behind a fence in his backyard. She found dug-up dirt in his shed, and then she found a garage that had her pottery, the pottery studio of Ensan June. After this, she went and found a hidden door in the back of his garage. The hidden door led to a room in the basement of the garage that had lights shining down onto a large pile of cat litter. Inside of the cat litter, they found the mummified human remains of Ensan June, the wife of Larry Vanner. Along with this, they found blood splatter on the heating and AC duct above, which indicated that there was blunt force trauma that killed her. She was also found dismembered. For the sake of clarity and continuity, the chameleon killer will be referred to by his actual name, Terence Peter Rasmussen, or Terry. Terry had a record and was previously incarcerated for three years in 1886, for child abandonment after he left his five-year-old daughter Lisa at a trailer park in San Bernardino, California. So this ultimately raised the question, who is Lisa, and how on earth is she related to the Bear Brooks murders? The turning point in the investigation of the Bear Brooks murders occurred when the officer Roxanne of San Bernardino PD realized through DNA evidence that he was not in fact the father of Lisa. This is what unknowingly reignited the investigation of the Bear Brooks murders, 
as Detective Headley was assigned to the case of Lisa, the supposed daughter of Terry. Detective Headley made a promise to Lisa, who had survived at the hands of a psychotic serial killer, went through the foster care system, and was at that point a wife with three children, that he would find out her true identity if it's the last thing he did. Detectives would continue to try to figure out who Lisa was, who her mother was, and where her family is. One ominous story that Lisa told herself when she was younger and interviewed after she was found abandoned by her supposed father was that she did indeed have siblings who died camping after, quote-unquote, eating grass mushrooms. This was kind of an ominous comment by her, but it may or may not have had some truth. What Detective Headley would go on to do was go through every possible method in the books, including, but not limited to, doing familial DNA testing, contacting an elderly couple that knew Lisa when she was still a five-year-old girl, contacting the trailer park she was abandoned at, along with extensively looking for missing persons reports of the time. All of these came out to be dead ends, however. It was then they finally decided to do public gene testing along with professional genealogists that they were able to recreate the family tree of Lisa and found that her name was actually Dawn Bowden of New Hampshire. This was significant not only to the investigation, but also would be a turning point in how forensics teams would utilize DNA in their efforts, as methods such as autosomal DNA testing was not previously used by law enforcement. The findings from the genealogical evidence that Headley would obtain would lead investigators back to New Hampshire, where they would eventually link the Bear Brook murders with the chameleon killer. As mentioned previously, Terry Rasmussen ended up going to prison for the murder of his wife and son, Jun, who was found dismembered and under a large pile of cat litter in a hidden room in Rasmussen's garage. Terry would eventually end up dying in prison in 2010. However, he was also believed to be the murderer of the four victims of the Bear Brooks murders, along with Denise Bowden, the mother of Lisa, or Don Bowden, and a number of other victims that were not able to be definitively proven, however, were in some way linked to him. Terry Rasmussen was the only killer that is almost with certainty believed to have been involved in all of these murders. When initially listening to the first few episodes of the podcast, I myself came to the conclusion that the killer must have been local due to the fact that he must have known the surrounding area fairly well in order to know how to navigate the woods and know exactly where to hide the barrels filled with the bodies. Along with this, I believe that the victims were not local at all and possibly were visitors that were just camping in the area as the Bear Brooks Park was fairly known for being a good camping site. This would explain the fact that no one came forward and filed a missing persons report on these victims in the area or anywhere in the country that would fit the description of the victims, which is definitely a strange occurrence. The locals in the area also didn't know anyone with the description once the forensic experts released potential sketches of the victims, further substantiating this theory. The identity of the killer throughout the podcast seemed to become evident as soon as Terence Rasmussen, also known as Larry Vanner, or the man that murdered his wife in California, was introduced. The real mystery of this podcast, however, was the identities of the victims, as this took around 30 years and a number of investigators, both law enforcement and civilian, to figure out. Ensign Jun's family was the first family that was openly affected by the monster that was Terry Rasmussen. 
They were shocked at his ability to convince his victims to trust him and turn them away from their families. It took the combined effort of law enforcement from Allenstown, the New Hampshire State Law Enforcement, California State Law Enforcement, along with many detectives, genealogical experts, forensic scientists, and even civilians before the puzzle pieces could be put together and the victims' identities found. The truth was that while the Bear Brook victims didn't have anyone to mourn for them, a great deal of individuals that were involved in the case grew to mourn them and had a drive like no one else to uncover the one responsible for their murders, along with what identities they had. Terry Rasmussen was the kind of individual that Detective Headley would describe as pure evil. He ended up preying oftentimes on single mothers with children, Ultimately, Terry Rasmussen's ability to get away from police and essentially go unnoticed with all of these murders ended up telling a lot about just how intelligent he was as a serial killer. The unidentified girl, the third one, ended up being Rasmussen's daughter. This begs the question, just what kind of individual could have murdered not only three innocent girls, but also his own daughter? and then kidnap another young girl, only to end up using her as a rape slave, and then end up marrying another woman just to murder her and dump her remains in cat litter. Terry Rasmussen might have continued on with his disgusting and disturbing murders had he not been captured by police following the disappearance of his wife and John June. If he would still be out there today, he might have continued on with his rampage, murdering and raping and destroying the lives of many women and young girls 